You may have noticed that our text this morning begins by telling us that Jesus is addressing believers. Look at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. He's speaking to a large crowd and specifically to these Jews who have in some way either confessed belief in him or consider themselves as believers. Yet, when we get to verse 44... He says this, you are of your father, the devil. This tells us something, doesn't it? It tells us that there's a belief that you can have that's spurious. A belief in Jesus that's not real. That, That speaks it on the outside. Yes, I believe, but really, you're self deceived. We, we think we believe, but we don't. In fact, we may have a form of belief that is really just a thin disguise for a hostile unbelief that rejects Jesus and is in complete opposition to him like the devil. And of course, uh, this should give us all a little pause, all of us who consider ourselves believers, right? We should reflect. We should stop and go, hmm. Think about the nature of our own belief. In fact, this is one of the main themes of the book of John. I don't know if you've noticed that as we've been going through it. I want you to flip over to John chapter 20, basically the end of the Gospel of John. It's only 21 chapters. John chapter 20, verse 31. This is where John states his, his purpose for writing this book. He says this, but these are written, these words that he's written, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He is writing so that people will come to truly believe in Jesus in such a way that they have eternal life, real belief unto life. Now flip back to the beginning of the book with me. John chapter 2, verse 23. This is after Jesus has done his first miracle at Cana. And then he's gone into the temple and taught. And then verse 23 of chapter 2 says this. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. From the very start, Jesus doesn't trust a lot of the belief that's coming his way. And John works his way through this book, teaching every chapter about belief and what it is to believe in Jesus. And now you have those standing in front of Jesus who seem to believe, but Jesus realizes that it's not real, that actually they are of their father, the devil. He's trying to draw out authentic, real belief because he knows how many are deceived about their belief. 
So as we go through this text, we're going to observe some of the, the ingredients of, of spurious belief, of a belief that's not real, and hopefully do some, some self-reflection. And I think we see the, the first ingredient right in the first few verses of our text as the Jews respond to Jesus. So go back to chapter 8, verse uh, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And look at their response. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? You see, the first ingredient of, of a, a belief that's not real is simply a delusion of freedom. A self-deceived belief that you are not enslaved. Many commentators point out how kind of out of touch it is for these, these Jews to make this claim that they have never been enslaved to anyone. I mean, if you know their history, they were enslaved to the Egyptians, then the Babylonians, then the Greeks, then the Syrians. And presently, as they stand in front of Jesus, they probably have coins in their pockets with the image of Caesar on them. They are occupied by the Romans. They are enslaved. They are the poster children of being enslaved. Yet they stand there in slavery saying, You've never been enslaved. Not us. They're completely deluded. And the sad thing is, Jesus knows this delusion isn't just political. It's not just on the surface. It's running very deep in them. We see this in verse 34. Look what Jesus, how he replies to them. Jesus answered them, truly, truly. That's, he says that when he's like, I'm going to give you the truth here. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. See, Jesus realizes that in their pride, the, these people are also deluded about their spiritual enslavement to sin, their bondage to sin. These guys think they are free of, of sin's grasp, of its power. They don't realize they need spiritual liberation. And Jesus says, let me remind you of a little fact. If you sin, you are a slave to sin. Which, by the way, he knows they've sinned. We've all sinned. The Bible makes that clear. In the last chapter, he was pointing out how they do everything they can to actually get around the law of Moses. And he knows that sinning is not neutral, that it actually acts upon us, it masters us, it enslaves us. The Bible points out that uh, the, the many ways that, that sin enslaves us, uh, first of all, it, it points out how it just enslaves us kind of in everyday life. We, we see this in the selfish, destructive sinful habits that, that rule, rule people in and ruin their lives, right? 
There's the obvious ones. We can point out like, you know, drug addiction and and alcoholism or a, a gambling habit. We can point out how destructive, how when people are caught in that sin, how it destroys their lives. You can look on the streets of Spokane and you can see people. You can see what the opiate crisis is doing. You can see people enslaved to their sin and it's literally destroying them. But that's the obvious. There's the hidden sin. Ever met somebody full of anger and bitterness and how it runs their life? How it's directed another person, but it's actually destroying them? It's got mastery over them. What about lust? The pornography industry understands enslavement to that sin. And they exploit it for all it's worth. It'll destroy you. It'll run your life. Then there's the accepted forms of uh, enslavement of sin. Something like uh, consumerism and greed. The lust for more stuff. It's kind of an accepted one in our culture, but watch how it masters people and runs their whole life. These, these things, these sins, eat up our lives and they control our every action. And the thing is, our slavery to sin is, is, is the kind of slavery that there's, there's really no way to escape it. Church father and theologian Augustine, using some old kind of English language, says, says this, at times a slave worn out by the commands of an unfeeling master, finds rest in flight. He says a slave may find some rest by, by, by fleeing and getting away. But where can the slave of sin flee? Himself he carries with him whenever he flees. An evil conscience flees not from itself. It has no place to go to. It follows itself. Yea, he cannot withdraw from himself, for the sin he commits is within. He's committed sin to obtain some bodily pleasure. The pleasure passes away, the sin remains. What delighted is gone, the sting remains behind evil bondage. It's a slavery that we, we can't get away from. And ultimately, it doesn't just enslave us in our lives. The Bible says it enslaves us in death. The Bible tells us in, in Romans 6.23, we had it read from Romans, that the wages of sin is death. Because we sin, we're cut off from our holy God, and we're, we're, we're cut off from that very power source, our creator of life. We're fading away, and when we physically die, we're cut off from him for eternity. And we're, people think, oh, death is an escape. I, I just can end it all, and I disappear. no. It leads to eternal enslavement outside of God's grace. And it's horrible. This is why Jesus says back in verse 31, you will die in your sins and where I'm going, you cannot come, I cannot come to be with their Holy Father. They will be enslaved in death. And it's interesting to me how that fear of death also kind of enslaves our lives. We spend our whole lives trying to avoid it, right? We spend our whole lives... You know, with the fitness craze and the anti-aging creams and the plastic surgery and whatever it may be to try to put off 
slave to trying to escape death. Sinners have no real freedom in this life and in death. But like this ancient audience, we often are in complete denial of our bondage. Completely deluded. Insulted that someone would suggest that we are enslaved. I mean, come on. We live in the land of the free. This is the Northwest. This is where everybody, you know, pioneers come out here to get away, escape, we're free. I do whatever I want, when I want, how I want. I'm in control. I choose my destiny. Nobody tells me what to do. I remember my son's high school graduation, the valedictorian quoted uh, Invictus, you know, uh, the captain of sea. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. To send off the charge for the high schoolers out. No, you know what? That's a delusion. It's an illusion that keeps you enslaved. But this delusion really doesn't explain this false belief. And Jesus kind of explains how they can be unknowingly kind of children of the devil. But why believe in Jesus at all? Why are they claiming belief in some way? Well, there's another ingredient, a key ingredient, and it's what actually facilitates the delusion, I think. Look at verse um, 33 with me. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. Look at verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Look at verse 41. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. The reason they think they are free, kind of above any spiritual bondage, Already God's children is because they are Abraham's children. They have the right ancestry. They weren't born of sexual immorality, unlike somebody. They're referring to Jesus, by the way. Who was his father? They can link themselves directly back to the big man, to Abraham. Their security is in their religious heritage. It's a delusion of freedom, even freedom from the bondage of sin, that is based in a religious heritage. Now, our religious heritage, parents and, and grandparents who know the Lord, can and should be a, a wonderful thing. Such a heritage may be the very means that God has used to bring you to him and to grow you in your faith. This has probably been the experience of many of you. The church I grew up in was over 150 years old, and uh, there were missionary families in the church that went back several generations. I had peers their friends, that we could go into the church office. There was a long missionary wall with all these pictures, and we could kind of trace their ancestry and look at their great-grandparents and their grandparents, and you know, literally back with pith helmets. I remember one picture. There's a picture of, I think it was Grandpa Stow standing next to a big hippo with a pith helmet on that he killed. And, and there was one with a bunch of uh, guys with, on Harleys that they would use to go into the jungles with their pith helmets on to share the gospel. It said, Heaven's Angels below it. I thought it was kind of cool. But my friends, Greg Stow and Tim Stow and Sherry Stow, these were their great-grandparents. And you know what? They were godly children. 
It was a great heritage. But that's not always the case. And, then, and this text makes it clear that we must never assume upon such a heritage when it comes to true freedom from sin and real belief, even if our heritage is Christian. And in fact, assuming on it can lead to a, a false belief, a shallow belief that recognizes Jesus, gives him the nod, says, I believe, you can't imagine not believing. I mean, that's, that's your whole history. But it's a belief that, that doesn't really trust in him, that does not lead to being a true disciple and thus leaves you enslaved to sin but thinking you're free. I want to speak specifically to the, to the younger folks here today, the teenagers and young adults. Are you resting on your family's belief? You know, I made my first confession of Christ when I was four or five years old. My first confession of belief, at least that's what I've been told. Because the truth is, most of my memories of that are kind of those implanted memories where your family tells the story over and over again and you kind of think you remember it. And the only thing I actually think I remember from that moment was the fact that our 70s dining table was this bright orange. Now, that may be the only part of the story I remember. It doesn't mean it's not real. I think it did happen. But as a young teenager... Well, I, I had to, when I was about 14, I had to re-examine whether that was real for me in the present. Did I really believe? Was I really trusting in Jesus, giving my life over him, to him? Or was I just resting on my family's history? And it's easy to be confused because your, your heritage has given you all the accoutrements of Christianity, right? You've always gone to church. You're very comfortable there. You know it well. You have a nice, probably leather Bible if you're a teenager now. You had your first children's Bible, and then a couple Christmases later, you got the one leather one and signed, and I have that. You have the, the Christian uniform. If you're a guy, it's khaki pants and a blue collared shirt. Some of you don't have the uniform on today, and I'm really disappointed. <laughs> but um, you may go to a Christian school. Your car has all the Christian presets. You've even done the mission trip thing. You must believe. See, Jesus wants these guys to be clear. There is no maybe halfway belief by association Christianity. It's black or white. You're either fully trusting in Jesus and free as a child of God, or you are enslaved by your sin and a child of the devil. That's pretty extreme. It's one or the other. Adults, perhaps you have a religious heritage. Perhaps you've been around long enough that you are a religious heritage. <laughs> but maybe it's given you a delusion of spiritual freedom that isn't real. Maybe your belief is grounded in your heritage rather than in Jesus. My mom, who's a pastor's wife, uh, Used to spend a lot of time uh, discipling women, meeting with women. And uh, she had this, uh, when, when, when she met with somebody made that was new and she wasn't sure where they stood with their Christianity, uh, she had this great diagnostic question. 
She would ask them if they were Christian, and if they said, oh, yes, definitely, I've been a Christian for many years, she would then follow up with, that's great. Now tell me about the time in your life that you dealt with your sinful rebellion against God. And if they were offended and said, I've never been in rebellion against God. I've gone to church all my life. I'm a Christian. Then she kind of knew. She knew they were assuming upon their spiritual heritage and maybe very self-deceived, still in slavery. And you know, this self-deception runs, runs deep. In fact, this passage tells us that deception is the very nature of the slavery that the sinner is in. In our sin, not only have we moved away from God, but we have stepped into the realm of Satan. We have made him our father. And verse 44 reminds us that he is the father of all lies. Look at verse 44. Let's read it. It's kind of a long one. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. The deception is, is, is pretty deep. He is the father of lies. That's his native language. The deception is so deep that in verse 45, Jesus says to this crowd, But... Because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. So deceived that you're repulsed by the truth. So in the lies that the truth are lies to you. It's a pretty bleak picture thus far, isn't it? Enslaved by sin in life, enslaved by sin in death, and completely deceived about it. But there is hope. There's a hope for real freedom. Jesus uh, gets to it actually right at the beginning of our passage. We just kind of read through it. Verse 31, let's read it again. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in, the, in, in Jesus' word. The idea of abide is, is to remain in, to kind of rest in, to put your trust in, settle your life into it. He says, then, then you are my true disciples. This is how you can know that your belief in me is not merely a delusional religious mask of enslavement, And when you do this, when you abide in my word, you will be set free. There is a real freedom, and it's found in Jesus' word, his truth. Of course, the question is, what word, what truth, what are we talking about here? Well, it's what all Jesus' words are about. It's what he's come to proclaim It's what he is and what he does. It's the the good news 
of the work he's done to bring freedom. There's, there's a, a few kind of cryptic verses in the middle of this text that are kind of an analogy for it. Look at, look at verse 35. Jesus is commenting on their whole slavery and slavery to sin. And he says this, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son, and note the capital S there, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You see, the Jews thought of themselves as God's children already, already sons. In the household of God, their sons, free. But Jesus reminds them, no, 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 you're like slaves in the household. There's household slaves, and there's the son. The household slaves, they have no, they have no freedom. They have, they have no authority. They can't free themselves. They can't free some. But the son of the father, he has authority because of his relationship to the father. John 3.35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands, all authority. That's Jesus. He's the Son in the house. He has the authority to set the slaves free. And in chapter 10, verse 17 or 18, 18, we find out that Jesus uses this authority to lay down his life and to take it up. That's the language. If you go read that section, it talks about the authority that he has that's been given to by the Father and how he uses it to lay down his life and to lift it up. To lay it down on our behalf, to take our sin and enslavement, to take our death upon him at the cross, and then to take it up in resurrection, overcoming death, buying us new life, having paid for our sins, offering us freedom, true freedom from from enslavement to sin in this life and enslavement to death. This is the truth, the word of Jesus that brings freedom that we need to abide in. And the question for, for everybody is, where am I abiding? In my religious heritage? Or in the words of Jesus? in the gospel of his forgiveness and freedom and life. Now, if you're, uh, if you're wondering, if you're kind of examining yourself and your belief as to whether it's shallow and merely religious, if you're wondering if you've been resting on religion rather than abiding in Jesus, thus never really being a true child of God, well, Jesus... Throughout this dialogue, if you notice, he gives this crowd some litmus tests. Ways for them to consider themselves. I think they're good for all of us. Look at the first one in verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. The first test, he says, is kind of look at your conduct. Turn off the volume, uh, put it on pause, put it on mute, and look at your life. Jesus is saying that if you really, in a sense, are, are spiritual heirs of Abraham, you know, that he knows they're physical descendants, but if they're the spiritual heirs of this man 
who truly trusted in God, who was truly a child of God, then they would act like him. You would do what he did. It's the inevitable truth that all teenagers hate, but we succumb to by the time we're about 30, that you will be like your parents. It's going to happen. You've got to give it up. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Just look at the mix. And, and what was Abraham, uh, and what Abraham claimed, you know, their spiritual father, what was he like? He believed God's word and he acted on it. He was distinguished by his obedience. But Jesus says in verse 40 here, you don't act like him at all, but you, now you seek to kill me. A man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. <laughs> you don't act like him at all. They want to kill Jesus. They wallow in their deceit. They are liars themselves like their father, the devil. The application is obvious. If you want to know if you're a child of God, look at the actions of your life. Do you obey? Not perfectly. Abraham wasn't perfect. Moses wasn't. None of them were. But are you pursuing obedience to the word of God? Or really, do you run your own life? Might be a good question to ask somebody else about you. But the next test, you've you got to answer for yourself. It's in verse 42. Here's another litmus test. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. It's a pretty straightforward one. It's very simple. If their father was God, if they were indeed his children, they would love God's son as they claim to love the father. If you want to know whether you are a child of God, a true believer, the question is simple. Do you love Jesus? Do you desire to please him and know him? Beyond words, do you love him? And finally, there's one last test we see it in, in, in uh, verse 46. He says, Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The last one is simply hearing. If you're a child of God, you will recognize his voice in Jesus, and you will listen. You will truly hear him as you, as you come to his word. It's a hearing that, that, that understands. We see that in verse 43. It's a hearing that believes. We see that in verse 46. It's a hearing that's not just physical, but reaches to the soul in total trust. Now, as we conclude, I... I want us to know how each one of these kind of litmus tests is relational. Obedience, love, listening, 
They aren't about ancestry or heritage. They're about relationship. This is how a child relates to his father. Listening. Loving. Striving to obey. This is how you know that your belief is real. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is the truth. That in all the deceits and lies of this world, you have given us the truth to filter everything through. Lord, help us to examine our hearts, to see where we're really resting. Lord, are we resting in in some heritage, something that's not really ours? Or are we resting in your son and his work for us at the cross? Amen.